0: This is a TSN original podcast.
1: Just a quick note for listeners, this podcast includes some adult language and subject matter. What about after the story came out? Did you follow any parts of Steve's life later? You know, he was arrested again later for running an escort service in uh, southern Ontario.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is the least shocking thing I've ever heard in my whole life,
1: Through a series of interviews and scouring hundreds of newspaper articles, I think I was able to figure out why this former NHL pro didn't have any money left at the end of his career. Now, the details on his contracts are a bit fuzzy. He should have been set for a long time. As a 23-year-old, he signed a new contract that would have seen him paid through age 35. There was a pretty unique clause in the agreement that said if he had a reasonably efficient season, he would be given another year. In essence, it was a self-perpetuating contract.
2: They signed him for 10 years. at 100000 I think it was a year. And the last year, it was 150000 That was the salary. They're not signing somebody for 10 years they don't think he can play.
1: What do you think that says, the fact that the Penguins signed him for 10 years?
2: Well, that he could play hockey. The name of the game, he could play the
1: game. You would imagine that he would have had enough cash left over to float his habit, but a series of missteps in his contract left him with little money left in his bank account. It was in Colorado that General Manager Ray Myron said he couldn't live with his contract. Steve was guaranteed another half million dollars at this point, but Myron said he wouldn't play another game until he renegotiated. But Steve wanted to play and have his name up in lights. So he signed a three-year deal with no guarantees And by the time the ink dried, the Rockies offered to buy him out for $25,000. Steve countered for slightly more, Colorado said no, and then they released him.
3: Didn't get a contract in January, couldn't sign on with anybody. I started that year with $1,320,000, and now it's January and I had $15,000 to my name. What'd you do then? Started doing cocaine.
1: He had to settle for much less money than his original guaranteed contract entitled him to. After he retired, he applied for a permanent disability claim with the league. The claim was promptly dismissed. He went from making almost $100,000 a year as a hockey player to $3 an hour plus tips as a bartender after his career was over. In many of the articles I read, they uniformly quote Steve as being bitter with the league and with his former agent, Alan Eagleson. Durbano was preparing to sue the league for his permanent disability pension, but then he was arrested for smuggling the cocaine.
4: He was not a guy who, you know, found something in jail. I think it was just something he had to go through and pay his penance.
1: Just a reminder, that voice you're hearing is journalist Bob Kravitz.
4: I do remember thinking that this guy really wants to try and get his life together and Um, you know, uh, to what degree he was able to do that, you know, it's a little hard for me to say.
1: Steve did try and spend his time wisely while incarcerated. Though his options were limited, he did try and make the best of the situation tried to pick up some usable skills so that he could find legitimate work after he was released from Joyceville.
3: I couldn't have picked anything up really except like the slaughterhouse. Uh, You know, uh, anything that you can learn, you're going to need four years training, an apprenticeship type thing. And uh, I figured if I want to better my education, I can do that on the street. I can get my grade 12.
1: Steve had attracted a lot of negative media attention while he was in jail. In one interview, Steve estimated that roughly 20 to 25% of NHL players were using drugs, ranging from pot to cocaine, even speed.
3: To me, the National Hockey League, it seems to me like, you know, they eventually bury anybody with any kind of suspicion. I'm sure they've done it to a lot of guys that have been, you know, well, this guy's not performing the way he's been scouted, so it's like we hear possibly he's on drugs, let's just get rid of him. Guys in junior, we we weren't drinkers, you know. In the old days, the junior players would always get drunk while we were smoking pot. A lot of people are doing it. And they figure, well, gee, I can do this and uh, I won't get hooked. And what usually winds up happening is you get caught or you get hooked.
1: The president of the league at the time, John Ziegler, took the moral high road and responded to the allegations by saying, I have no interest in what a convicted felon has to say. On March 19th, 1984, Durbano was released to a halfway house, vowing to never go behind bars again. He got out and
2: he said, "Bang! Went right, got right into the, the booze." He quit the dope, but he got into the booze right away. Yep. Yeah. What did that do to him? Well, that's what that's what screwed up his life. I mean, he,
0: I mean, booze. I mean, was was part of his life. That was part of his menu. I mean, not a day went by that he didn't drink. and and that was his that was his nemesis then. you know that he was he was a drunk.
1: Durbano may have picked up some life skills at Joyceville, but he wasn't able to shed his addictive personality. The man came out of jail with a craving for alcohol. He moved from Toronto to Welland, Ontario to help manage one of the golf courses that his father, Nick, owned. He was attempting to build a normal life for himself, and he had the tools to do it. He stayed out of the newspapers for a while. There was very little written about him in the five years after he was released from jail. Then in 1990, he split up with his partner, Lenora, and the addiction she had helped to keep at bay resurfaced. Shortly after... His name would reappear in a newspaper headline. It read, "Durbano nabbed for shoplifting." He was caught stealing five shirts from a store at the Eaton Center in Toronto, and for that, he received a five-day jail sentence. The next time he got in trouble with the law would be a much bigger deal.
2: I guess it was like a, a dating service. Like, a,
1: I guess some some of them were, were prostitutes, and that was it. It's now the spring of 1997, and Durbano is merely a shell of his former self, running a business out of a townhouse that his father owned in Welland, Ontario. At this point, he is completely broke and struggling to make ends meet, barely surviving on a $300 a month pension from the NHL. So Steve went back to doing what he knew best, operating on the margins of society's moral limits. The five-star escort service was used as a front for a prostitution ring. He set it up like this. First, Durbana would place personal lads in the local newspapers looking for women to work for him. Then after they'd meet, Steve would explain the various prices that the women would receive for different sex acts. And finally, Steve would drive the ladies to and from their dates, and in turn, he would get a kickback from what they made. It was September 2nd, 1997, when an undercover Niagara regional police officer from the Vice Squad answered one of his ads. Steve's luck had run out again.
0: What happened was that somebody caught wind of it. An undercover agent went and was applying for an escort position with him, and through the course of the conversation and... You know, kind of laid it out here, well, here's the deal, here's the real deal, and that's when he got busted for it.
1: He was caught red-handed, and he would eventually plead guilty. Both the Crown and the defense argued that a $1,000 fine would be more than appropriate. Judge Leslie Baldwin disagreed. The judge wrote in her decision, This is not a momentary lapse in judgment. She also wrote, this is a planned, deliberate business activity that results in the denigration of women.
0: Well, obviously, it was for the money, you know, just like the Coke. I mean, you know, money definitely played a part in that. Um, and instead of marketing himself in a legitimate fashion, it was easier for him to market himself in, you know, in a, in a unfortunately, a criminal fashion, you know was easier he thought the money was easier and unfortunately that's what happens when you you think that your your ass is going to jail (laughs) sooner or later
1: coming up after the break steve is released from jail and finds himself in a remote part of canada did you know there's a new way to get tsn TSN Direct
0: lets you stream all your favorite live sports and so much more. And it's all in stunning HD. All you need is internet. What are you waiting for? Go to tsn.ca slash subscribe.
1: After serving three months for attempting to procure a woman to become a prostitute, Steve is released from jail and moves out of Ontario. What did you think about his move to Yellowknife? It surprised me on one hand. Um, I mean,
0: his, he was never married to Lenora, but she was from Western Canada and uh, Steve and her actually split up and she moved to uh, Calgary. So this was kind of a way for him to be closer to them than being, you know, living in Ontario. Um, still a thousand miles away, but but closer to some degree. It was a place for him to kind of get away from all the crap and whatnot that was happening to him in in Ontario and and all the publicity and the news and you know everything else that was going on that was surrounding his life. I kind of encouraged him to go like the west. I said, Stephen.
2: I said, you got to get out of Ontario. I said. I think he should go north, and I think he was finally—he was starting to get at the age where he's starting to realize that the, his behavior, you know, wasn't in the best. And he, I think he was trying to trying to change it, but then, by the time he got up there, his liver was gone.
1: He never quit the booze. Steve made his way west to Alberta, and when he arrived, he got a job with a company cleaning carpets. In search of prospective clients. He moved on to Yellowknife.
5: Hello. Hi.
1: This is Kathy, Steve's partner that he met while he was in the Northwest Territories.
5: I'm sorry I gave you the runaround for a while.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No problem. Kathy is one of two people that I spoke to that had an intimate knowledge of Steve during his final chapter. So uh, I'm, I'm grateful to you for agreeing to talk to me for a few minutes about him.
5: Well, I thought I might be able to put a positive spin on it.
1: Kathy was bartending when she first laid eyes on Steve.
5: His reputation preceded him. I knew who he was. But anyway, he came in and, and uh, he offered to come and clean my carpet for me. So that's how we met. And we started dating shortly after that.
1: That reputation Kathy's talking about made Steve something of a local celebrity.
5: He'd come into the bar and they would want to hear stories about how it was cuz he'd made it to the big times
1: and one of those people that listened to his stories was this guy
4: Rocco
5: speaking low
1: That's Rocco Moraglia a man Steve became pretty close with while he was in the Northwest territories
4: He came and visited my parents' restaurant, him being Italian. Ours was one of the only Italian restaurants in the city. You know, he came in and we just started chatting and then we just kind of really hit it off.
1: Steve and Rocco formed an immediate bond. In a city with fewer than 20,000 inhabitants, it probably wasn't that shocking that the two found each other.
4: He was a good guy. He, he drank, uh he, you know. I mean, he polished off a couple of beers. Uh, the the more beer he had, you know the the story the stories got thicker and thicker. And I think, you know, now in in hindsight versus back then, you know, I just thought this guy just wanted to talk. You know, I, I think part of him was, you know, he he dre- desperately wanted to fit into a to a new place. You know, he always had a story. He always wanted to chat. I remember one time he talked about mooning the audience. And he says, you know, like the moment I did that, like right after, he says, I regretted it. I go, like, oh. I says, well, why'd you regret it? He says, it made me look stupid. But but then that would pass right away. And then he. I remember he said, like, then I wanted to go back and, and kill this guy again. It was just like, there would be a switch that would go on where it would be like, what the hell was I doing? And then all of a sudden, like, God, I'm going to rip your head off.
1: But that version of Steve, the reckless and unpredictable one, only seemed to show up while he was on the ice. He was
4: never mean or angry. He wasn't a mean drunk. He he didn't yell. He did not nothing. He was just a calm, laid-back guy.
1: I was curious to hear... If Steve had allowed his emotional baggage to follow him to Yellowknife or if he'd left his history behind him in Ontario, is it fair to say Steve had many regrets in his in his life things that he would have done differently
5: I think so. I used to say that it was a shame he didn't coach because he, he he was good he knew how to play he didn't have to be the the enforcer that he was.
4: Did he talk much about his past with you?
5: Um. Yeah, he was pretty bitter with his dad. He felt he got ripped off uh, with in regard to uh, his father had a golf course that him and his brother worked at, and um. Yeah, he had a lot of anger and resentment toward his dad.
4: I, you know, I think he was lonely and I think he, he felt that he had been, you know, dealt a, a shitty hand. All he would say is physically, he said, I'm busted. He'd always say, I'm busted. He says, look at this, look at my hands, look at my, you know, and I says, and, and you know, it wasn't like he was blaming anybody. He was just saying that, you know, this is, this is the cards that he was dealt and he was looking for a better hand.
1: Steve moved to the Northwest Territory signaled a new beginning, a place that he could shed all of the negativity that had built up over the years.
4: I can honestly say that he felt comfortable in his skin there. He didn't have to, you know, he didn't have to fight. He didn't have to do anything. He he had people that, you know, kind of even I took him under his wing, but, you know, he came in, and said, Rock, I'm a little short cash, no worries. I'd like to eat whatever you need, a couple beers. bears. It was just that's the way it was and it was almost like old yellow knife where you know guy comes in uh, he's accepted by everybody because we've all got a story and you know the land of misfit toys you know guys can uh, do very well and 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 even starting there with nothing like my dad um and to him coming up and you know really wanting to kind of forget where the hell he came from but not and get a fresh start you know, I think he found some peace in you life. Know, like, I honestly do.
1: If you think about your best time with him, does any one weekend or time together jump out?
5: Uh, it would have been the last summer. We had a friend who had an island out on Preluth and we spent, like, three weeks straight out there. You know, we'd already knew that he was sick. So that would have been, like, in August, which it was starting to get cold So we kind of built a path out there on the island there was sand under the rocks so we dug up all the rocks and made a sandy path around this little island and in the spring uh there was a little clump of trees where you docked the boat and came up onto the island and he had um actually made a little heart there around the trees you know with all the rocks like he was he was quite a kind person and you know he didn't let a lot of people be that side of him, but. but we were fortunate.
1: Those knew us. Emotionally, he had started anew. But physically, it was too late for Steve. All of the drinking he had done caused irreversible damage to his liver. And he needed a new one desperately.
2: I spoke to him a week before he died. And he was telling me, he said, Jesus, because they called me, he said, they got a liver transplant for me. The
1: organ was located in Alberta. Steve would have to head there to get the surgery done. So he went to bed, and I didn't, I'd never heard back from him. So, so anyway,
2: I, finally, I called him, and I said, uh, what happened, you never called me that. And he, goes, well, he said, well, they, they said, and he gave me some flim inflammatory I said, Stephen, I guess you're a drunk, and they caught you. See, but they, they told him, if you're going to continue drinking, we, we won't give you the liver transplant." So they called him by surprise, and he'd been boozing, so he went down there, and I guess they detected the alcohol, and they wouldn't give him the, the uh, liver. And that was it. A couple of days later, he died.
1: Steve passed away on November sixteenth, two 2002, just one month shy of his 51st birthday. How did you find out that he died?
2: I was at a golf course in Florida at the time, and uh, someone come... Uh, Give me the message. He so said want one on the phone, so I went to the phone. And that's it. So.
1: I think I called you. Hmm.
2: I called you. Well, so but anyway, the uh, we knew that the, the liver was a major thing, and uh, and but he like you say, he wouldn't quit. The, he wouldn't quit the boozing. That must have been a hard phone call. Yep. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I was I was just about ready to tee off, and I said that was. And my golf game pretty well, you know, so I quit, asking after the 5th or 6th hole and
1: went back to the hotel and, you know, not much I could do about it. Kathy told me that Steve was surrounded by friends during his final days.
5: I remember uh, Sandy Graham and he, he was like, it's okay, Steve, you can go. And he was, you know, because by that time, the uh, toxins had taken over, you know, he wasn't really present. Uh, Yeah, it was not pretty at the end. As death usually is not. But I'm glad we were all there so that he wasn't alone. I feel if I hadn't met Steve, he would have died alone somewhere, you know?
1: His time in Yellowknife had served him well, as Steve had found some semblance of peace in a remote northern community. After he passed away, John went to collect his brother's body. Somebody told me that he had his ashes spread in a river near Kingston, Ontario. Well, my mother,
0: my mother's from uh, Newburgh. That's where she was born and raised. We went there a lot as kids. We loved it there. Um, That's where he wanted his ashes spread and uh, we made arrangements to make that happen. Were you involved in that? Yeah. Me and my mother. We actually held a memorial for him, a little church right there. And after the memorial, we went to the river site and put his ashes in the water. Why do you think he wanted that? I don't know.
1: You know, but that's, that's what he wanted. Steve was a profoundly confusing individual, even to those who knew him best. While looking through some of Steve's old photos, John and Nick showed me an obituary that one of Steve's old friends had written.
0: I think that was from
1: from somebody up in Yellowknife. I wrote that about him. He lived every young hockey player's dream. He made the NHL and played professional hockey for nearly a decade. Life after hockey was no less turbulent. The 80s and 90s found Steve battling drug abuse and on the wrong side of the criminal justice system. He did his time, and in July of 1997, Steve made his way to Yellowknife and found some peace. We were lucky to have him with us, if only for a brief span of time. He faced his final foe with courage and dignity and will be missed by all of us who were fortunate enough to know him. That's Pretty good write-up, that one. Pretty good write-up. Before we wrap up this episode, I just want to share one more memory that Kathy told me about.
5: Well, the fall before he uh, died, they were having a karaoke competition. And Steve used to go, (laughs) he practiced at home, you know. And he got up and sang... My Way by Frank Sinatra. And there was not a dry eye in the house, I'm telling you, because everybody knew he was sick and he didn't have long to go. And that's that's my favorite memory, I do believe, of Steve. Yes.
1: Coming up in the next episode, we go back in time to Steve's childhood,
0: We had a lot of fun as kids. We had a cottage that we used to go to every summer. That was always our ambition, to take the boys someplace.
1: He didn't know if he'd he'd walk again. doctor said he might never walk.
0: The referee missed the call, and then Nick just went totally ballistic.
1: The officer kept pushing Steve
0: on the chest, pushing him back, and I'm going, oh no.
6: This story is reported and hosted by Rick Westhead. Senior producer for Dubano is David Krixt. Executive producer is Ken Bolden. The show was produced and edited by Sam Glisserman. Mixing and sound design by Sean Pattenden. Research, fact-checking, and locating guests for all interviews was done by Takia Singh and Emily Hanskamp. Our theme song was composed for us by Jonathan Gallant of Billy Talent. Show art and design by Vince Arnone and Eric Kirk website developed by Pete Stewart. Thanks to everyone who chose to share their stories about Steve with us. Nick and John Durbano, Lisa Ostrich, Chuck Arneson, Ken Lindsman, Steve Shutt, Phil Roberto, Dale Tallon, Karen Pappin, Rocco Maraglia, Kathy McKinnon, Dave Hansen, Dave Schultz, Gil Leger, Bob Kravitz, and Rosie D'Amano. Special thanks to Matt Cade, Darren York, Corwin McCallum, Daniel Zekchevsky, Brett Mitchell, and Bruce Masoff for all their help on this project. Archival audio courtesy of W5, CTV, CHCH, the NHL, and the WHA. For more bonus content, head to tsn.ca slash There you can check out some vintage photos, a character list, and the entire credits for the show. Thanks for listening.